The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please take God's holy word and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. And if you're joining us here this morning, we have been preaching through the book of Exodus section by section and and verse by verse, and we've seen already in chapter 17 God's power for human weariness, and we're going to see today God's power in remembrance. Power is a key word in Exodus. In fact, the key verse in Exodus 9-6, the mission statement or the theme verse of the book, I would argue, is that God says he's doing the Exodus to make his power known and to proclaim his name to all the earth. It's much bigger than Israel. This is about the, the world. To proclaim his power, to make known his name. And it's power to conquer. It's also power to convert. But it's not about powerful Moses, where we left off last time. His arms lacked the power, lacked the strength to even keep uplifting Israel, and that's where we pick up in Exodus 17, verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now we come to verse 14 where we'll pick up this week. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial on a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, or some of the translations say something like, he has sworn with a hand, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, this is who we were reading about earlier in the scripture reading, the backstory. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of Father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God." And I would just remind you, that's the same place where Moses was at the burning bush, where this all began, at the mountain of God. Verse 6, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord 
who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Last month after I took my daughter Annalie to Bible school in England, I took a train ride up to Edinburgh, Scotland, where I was going to fly to Rome to visit our, our missionary who was there. And it was an amazing thing to be a part of some of that old history, to walk some of those old cobblestone roads. It was an amazing thing to hear amazing grace on bagpipes echoing through such a historic place. But I, I wanted to see the John Knox house where the reformer in the 1500s lived and preached so powerfully. And I got there and it was closed that day. And there was one other guy standing there trying to get into it. He was from a church in Michigan, and it actually traces their confession back to Knox, and he was pretty disappointed. But I I learned that John Knox, who was such a powerful influence there, isn't really honored very much. Even in the way he's buried, he's buried under a parking lot spot. 22 is where his grave is very unceremoniously, and secular Scotland has reduced his place to a tourist attraction that is sometimes open, but not when I was there. And in the cathedral where he preached, his statue is hard to find, but I found it, and I took a picture with it. See if I can pull it up here for you. Um, and as I did this, I didn't realize someone else was taking a picture, and I kind of stepped in and took a picture, and she just shook her head, like you Americans do with your selfies. But I was just so excited to find John Knox, and I was excited to be in the place where he preached so powerfully, and to see where he preached in that St. Giles Cathedral, and he preached against idolatry, and, and so powerfully, and was so concerned with worshiping the true God rightly, that he alone is great, and, and all other false ways of worship need to be abolished. And that made me think then and now of Exodus 18, where Jethro comes to see that God is greater than all other gods and that idolatry needs to be abolished now, that God needs to be worshipped rightly the way he ordains. And Jethro rejoices in what I read of how Israel had been delivered from slavery. And John Knox knew something about slavery firsthand as well. He had been captured by French Catholic forces and he had been a, a galley slave for some time. But then when he was released from slavery, he saw it was his duty because of his deliverance from slavery to proclaim God's greatness. And that's very much what Israel has been called to do as well. They've been delivered from slavery and their mission is not just to be Israel in the wilderness. It's to proclaim God's name to people all around the world, starting with the people in the wilderness that they're going to interact with like we read about in our text one of the lessons of Exodus seventeen fourteen is it's good to remember history. There's things that need to be recorded. There's things we need to write down about what God has done in the past. Or like chapter 17, verse 16, that God fights for his people from generation to generation. 
God will deal with his enemies. He will prevail. And verse 15 of chapter 17 mentions a banner being raised up in the Lord's name. And I'm thankful for Banner of Truth Publishing and how they've raised up some of the works of, of Knox and, and others for our generation. The, the cathedral there, there's a stained glass window that gives a, a scene of what it would have looked like from artists when he was preaching there. But even the, the banner of the flag of Scotland to this day, even though it was given to the, the, the new king recently, the, the banner flag for the Church of Scotland has in the center of it this, burn, this exodus image of the burning bush, that, that that light that begins in the burning bush and what's revealed about God there needs to keep burning and it needs to be lifted up for others to see. And when verse, verse 13 mentions Joshua prevailing with the sword, I, I think of how John Knox was called the Presbyterian with a sword. And he literally earlier had been a bodyguard, sword bearer for George Wishart, who was his mentor, who became a, a martyr preaching the Reformed faith. But John Knox would go on to, to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in many battles for the truth. And he would prevail, and, and ultimately Christianity would prevail there in Scotland through the gospel. And I think of Moses as he stood up to the king of Egypt, and boldly proclaim God's truth. That was also true of John Knox. He boldly stood before, on more than one occasion, Mary, queen of Scots, and he warned her and preached directly to her the warnings of the gospel. And, and there was a time where she said, if you have any problem with how I'm living, come and preach to me privately. And he said to her, you can come to St. Giles Cathedral any time to hear what I have to say. He would not give in even to the one who could take his life, Mary, Queen of Scots. It was said that the queen feared the prayers even of John Knox more than the armies of Egypt or, uh, of Europe. She, she feared the prayers of John Knox more than even invading armies. Here's one of his prayers that's recorded. Behold our troubles and apparent destruction, and stay the sword of thy vengeance before it devour us. Place above us, O Lord, for your great mercy's sake, place above us rulers and magistrates who will fear your name and, and will the glory of Christ to spread. Take not from us the light of the gospel and suffer no papistry, that means pope teaching, to prevail in this realm. Illuminate the heart of our sovereign lady, Queen Mary, and inflame the hearts of her council with your true fear and love. We need to pray like that still today for our leaders and our rulers. And I like also how he applied Old Testament warfare, like Exodus 17, to, to spiritual battles we face. He said, John Knox said, if you're, in his words, in a spiritual battle, do not be discouraged as though you were less acceptable in God's presence or that Satan might at any time prevail against you. No, you may be so strengthened that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive and see that God fights your battle. That's really the, what Israel needed to see here and what they do see and what the world begins to see. And I think Satan even sees here that the satanic Pharaoh could not prevail against Israel and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the battle is the Lord's. And the world sees that starting with Jethro and we'll get to him. But we've seen the battle is the Lord's. We need to also see the banner 
of the Lord for the world. His power is going to be displayed, and it is displayed to his enemies, so that, purpose statement of Exodus, so that his name would be proclaimed to all the earth. So both things are happening in Exodus. His power, remember, it was shown to Egypt and the plagues, all the miracles, everything that's happening is showing his power, but it doesn't end with that. It's so that his name and his fame would go out to the world. And we're going to see that even begin with a Gentile converted to confess, now I know the Lord is greater than all others. This passage is going to show us the Lord is supreme. And we'll look at this in, in two sections, in man's memory at the end of chapter 17 and in God's mission. But there's not just a battle of men at the end of it. He's going to talk about the memory in chapter 17. And there's going to be a banner that goes beyond Jews to Jethro, to the Gentile world, which he is a first fruits of in chapter 18. But first, Man's memory. Look at chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial. And we use that word memorial for a number of things. We've got Memorial Day weekend coming up. We already prayed for memorial services, which are to remember. This coming Saturday, Grace Bernardo, the Monday after that, to remember Paul Anthes, former pastor here, friend to me and and many, Ron Eichers, memorial service on June 24th here as well. Next month, we need to remember those things in prayer. And a good Christian memorial service remembers and celebrates God's work in a life. It celebrates God's faithfulness, what he has done. And we're going to see in this message how in the Psalms, as they did this, even in grief, even in great sorrow, as they remembered who God is, as they remember what God has done, that helped them to move forward in the future. And we need that help today. And what we see in this passage is a number of things that tie in with how we remember things. In verse 15, Moses built a monument a monument was one of those things they did to remember what God had done in a particular place. And verse 14 describes it kind of like a war memorial. This is something to be written down. This is something to be recited to the years. And the younger generation, Joshua, needed to keep passing this on. It was to remember God's past work and the life of Israel for the future. And this is the first mention, I believe, of writing in Scripture. And this is the first mention of the word memory, at least in my translation, There's a memory that's to be dealt with of Amalek. It was to be wiped out. We'll talk about what that means. And then there's a memorial of God's power that's to be written out. There's some things that need to be forgotten or or kept in a proper place. There's things that we need to remember that we might not remember if we don't write down. And the context here is war. In the first part of chapter 17, war is often something that leaves trauma in the memory, difficulty. People here who have, to some degree, wrestled with PTSD, whether from war or just from wounds of the past that are difficult to heal, many difficult things 
have happened to people in this room. And, and let's remember in this context of chapter 17, people had died earlier. The, the Amalek, Amalekites were the first terrorists, and their tactics were, were horrible. People would have seen horrible things before their eyes with their loved ones. Maybe it was hard even with some of those images and those memories that would keep coming back as they're grieving. God's Word is written here of things that needed to be written here. And and even as many in this room are grieving, how do we keep moving forward? How do we deal with some of those hurtful, painful things of the past? Sometimes those things, those past wrongs can even keep replaying at times you don't you can't even explain maybe you're even at communion and these memories are are coming back or at other times well god's sufficient word for them and for us has some help and i I want us to consider some takeaways from this concept of of writing down and, and remembering certain things to recall and to retell how god redeems in verse 14 he says write this down Repeat this. Repeat this out loud. And and this has been a pattern we've already seen in Exodus. In chapter 12, Passover was called a memorial day. This was a a regular annual memorial. It was a memorial of their redemption. It was to remember how God had brought them out of slavery. And there were certain things they were to do and even eat that would prompt that that memory. And as it prompted it, there there were some terrible things from their bitter slavery, but even they were to be reminded of God's redemption. And, and he, he tells them, this is to be a memorial before your eyes. In chapter 12 and, and chapter 13, there, there were helps that God gave them to help recall rightly and to retell how God had redeemed. And then also they needed to remember, and we need to remember God's power. That's one reason Moses, in verse 15, is building an altar to to memorialize or, or to mark where God's power had been on display. It wasn't about their great army, it was about their great God. That's what the monument is for. It's not to them, it's to God. It's also why in chapter 15, it doesn't move on from the Red Sea until they make an and memorize a song that they sing of victory to the power of, of the Lord who has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And, and from the youngest of them on up, they would have grown up learning and singing that song. And I'm, I'm told it's a fact that actually the songs that we learn when we are younger, there's a, a part of the brain where those are, are stored that sometimes those things can be remembered when almost everything else you have forgotten there's a, by God's grace, there's even a part of the brain where those songs have, have been learned and not forgotten. I've experienced this at some of our convalescent home outreaches where someone will ask certain questions repeatedly or they're not even sure who's sitting next to them. But then we sing a song like Away in a Manger and they know every word. And that's just part of, I think, God's common grace that helps us even to remember those words. And I, I know of people, loved ones, that have been a part of this church, that even as they've forgotten so many other things, even their own loved ones' names, they can still join in the words of hymns and sing them. And that's a, a sweet thing, this gift of memory that God gives. But also in Scripture, we need to refuse to dwell on past wrongs. And this is a battle that many can face 
But God says in this passage that he's going to utterly blot out the memory of, or he's, he's going to blot out the remembrance of Amalek. And this isn't blotting out like amnesia. This is, this is like Amalek is being forgotten in the sense of that they're not going to focus on that anymore. It's, it's actually recorded here. His name is recorded. It's not lost to history. And so what the Lord is talking about here is not memory you lose like dementia. I know people have gone through that in your families, but it's when you refuse to dwell on past bad memories. And, and we'll talk about that dynamic, how the Psalms even use the Exodus event to help God's people with that. But one of the things that's helpful to think about in all this is for believers, Scripture says God remembers our sins no more. God remembers our sins no more. We know God has perfect knowledge of all things. There's, there's nothing that's ever happened that, that is erased from God's infinite omniscience, but he remembers our sins no more. In other words, he doesn't bring them up against us when they've been covered and confessed and paid for by Christ. He, he will not bring those again against us or keep dwelling on or, or focusing on those. And I think even the way Moses speaks to his father-in-law may give us some help. If you look at chapter 18, verse 8, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So he, he's acknowledging the hardship, but he's not dwelling on the past. He's not staying there. He's recalling it briefly to retell God's deliverance from the hardship, from the evil of Pharaoh and Egypt. And he's remembering as he remembers those things, and he's retelling God's victory. And God had been a help to his family to deliver them. If you look at chapter 18, verse 3, I think even in the way the two sons are mentioned here, the name of the one, Exodus 18, verse 3, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eliezer. This name wasn't mentioned in the scripture reading earlier. This is now brought in. Gershom, I've been a sojourner, that's what Gershom means, in a foreign land. But the name of the other, his second-born son, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Moses had a lot in his past that was wrong, that was painful. But God helped him to dwell elsewhere. And even in the, the names that are recorded here and the, the history of his life, his life had been, he'd been a, fo uh, a foreigner, a sojourner, an alien would be another word. He was a Hebrew from his earliest days, raised as an Egyptian. He didn't quite fit in. He, he really identified with his people more than the Egyptians later. But later in Midian, as he fl fled from Egypt, he fled his own Jewish people, and he lived as a Jew with Arabs in, in Midian, that's in Arabia. And so he named his first son Gershom. Gershom is the word for foreigner, sojourner, outsider. And he saw that as defining his life. When they would use names, it would be defining characteristics of where they were at in their family. But by the time his second son comes, he names him 
with a, a different note in Eliezer. Ezer is the word help we see even from early Genesis. And Eli, the first part of that is my God. We, we see the word El for God. Eli at the end of that means my God. And so what defines his life now is my God is my helper. Yes, I'm a foreigner, a sojourner. I don't fit in. All these things have happened. I've, I've been out of place. But God has been my help. And then he applies it here even to what they had just gone through in Egypt. Eli, Azer, I think some of the later readers of Scripture would recognize Eli, Eli from these famous words in Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my help, he says, from helping me? And then he says, deliver me from the sword. That's the same language Moses is using here. That Psalm might even be thinking back on this. Eliezer, my God helps and delivers from the sword. And Psalm 22 ends with this word. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. In other words, it would be retold of the Lord that he had delivered. The Lord helps. The Lord is the helper of those who feel utterly forsaken. And those words recall the cross where Jesus used that very same word, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, on the cross as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out, why? Why? He experienced it in a greater way than the writer of Psalm 22. He didn't just feel that. He faced the force of that as God's wrath came upon his sin. But because of what he did there, he shows how God helps and delivers and redeems us from sin. And as we think of the cross, we can can remember God's power. We can remember his power over death in the empty tomb. Even in death, that horrible enemy, his power is displayed. And by grace, we can refuse to dwell on whatever is wrong from the past By the power of the cross. We're not defined by our past. We have a new identity as the redeemed in Christ. And and this language of remembering is used in in light of what Christ did, like Ephesians 2.11. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, remember that you were at that time foreigners and strangers to the covenants of promise you were outsiders to grace he's saying without hope and without God in the world all of us were that without hope without God strangers totally outside of the the covenant but now in Christ Jesus he says you who were formerly far off you who were formerly outsiders you have been brought near by the blood of Christ through the cross, he then goes on to say, you are, this is to Christians now, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of God's household. Even us who have not a drop of Jewish blood in our DNA, who seems so far removed from the, the covenants we read about in the Old Testament, Through the cross, we're no longer strangers and outsiders. We are part of the one people of God through the cross. We're members 
equally and fully, joint heirs, all of that. Not just with believing Israel, but with Christ himself, we're joint heirs, fellow sons. Second Timothy 2.8, remember, remember, it's Second Timothy 2.8, remember Christ Jesus risen from the dead. And, and Philippians 3 talks about, as we know, the power of the resurrection that can help us to be able to forget the things that are behind, to, to keep the past in its place, to be continually forgetting the things that are behind. And again, this isn't memory loss, but it's counting them as loss. It's, it's counting them as loss compared to the surpassing treasure of knowing Christ, that he becomes much bigger than all of that. But we have to renew our mind. We have to put off bitterness And here's how one writer explains it. Forgiving and forgetting, sometimes you hear that, but it doesn't mean that you'll never recall what hurt you greatly. This writer says it's a greater remembrance. It's remembrance of Christ's forgiveness of you. By remembering your own offenses against God that are paid on the cross, then you can forgive others. Because that offense no longer needs to be bathed in bitterness if it's been bathed in blood. The blood that pardoned your sin. And then he gives this analogy, those stars. You know, Twelve hours ago, if you'd gone out, if there weren't clouds, you could have seen all these stars up there. But as the sun comes out, those stars are still there. And, and, and you, you know that intellectually, those stars are still there, but you can't see them anymore because the, the sun is so much brighter and it's overpowering all of that. And, and so in... In that sense, the bitterness or things that, that we know are there in the past that we can't completely forget. They're still there. We can still acknowledge them. But the, as we look to Jesus, look to, the, look to Christ and what he's done for us, all of that can fade away. Those things on earth can grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. And so don't think of forgiveness as forgetfulness, in the, but really more right remembrance so that we can keep them in their proper place. And we don't have to go to the New Testament to find statements like that. Moses has already written about really wrong things that have been done to Joseph. In the story, the story that brought God's people to Egypt, Moses had horrible things done. He was sold as a slave, remember? He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. And then the guy who was supposed to get him out of prison literally forgot him for two years. But at the end of all that, as he looks back, he has two sons also. And he names his two sons also significant names to speak of God's grace. Genesis forty-one fifty-one. The first one he named Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship. That's what the word Manasseh has to do with. And then he named his other son Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Manasseh, God has made me forget those hardships. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's acknowledging his affliction still, his hardship still. So in what sense had God made him forget? Well, he knew what they had meant for evil, God actually meant for what? For good. Genesis 50, verse 20. And so even in saying that, he recognizes there was evil, there was wrong that they had done. He's not denying that, but he's looking higher. 
is looking to sovereign goodness. We've got to look to that. We've got to believe in God's sovereign goodness, even in things that are not right. Joseph's redeemed memory didn't dwell on what sinners had done to him. He dwelt on what his Savior had done in him. There's a great lesson for us. To not dwell on what sinners have done to us, but to to dwell on what the Savior is doing in us. So we don't minimize sin. This is not just sweeping it under the rug, pretending it doesn't exist. We don't minimize sin. What we're doing is we're memorializing and maximizing grace as greater than all sin. Ours or others or how things just in this world can affect us. So Moses wrote about that at the end of Genesis. And and Moses is the one writing the book of Exodus. And he's again recording God's power and he's recording it how God helped Moses, how God helped that generation, how God helped Joseph, that we need to recite these things to the next generation. That's what Moses is going to write later. We need to be telling these things, and he says here it's good to write this down so that we don't forget. We need to tell each other these things. We need to love to tell the story of of what God has done in our life. We need to hear it. We need to repeat it. Maybe you have a family member that, that seems to keep telling the same story over and over again. You know what? We need to all be that family member when it comes to the gospel. We need to keep telling that story over and over again to ourselves and to others. We need to record it. it it's good to even journal it, to write these things down. I know someone who journals every day something that they are thankful for. I am really bad at remembering things if I don't write them down. I, I need all kinds of reminders all over the place to recall things. People think, do you need that? Yes. I, I, even with that, I still sometimes forget. I need helps. I need to recall. I need to retell them out loud. Here's what one doctor writes. Hearing plays a significant role in the short-term memory, which is why you are able to remember a longer string of numbers by not just reading them, but saying them out loud. But hearing also greatly impacts your long-term memory, so not just short-term memory. Hear a piece of information, and three days later, you'll remember 10% of it. But if you add a, a, a picture, if you see something, you'll remember 65% of it. It's a big difference. And so God, even in the Exodus, he's, he's got these visuals, like this jar of manna that they were to keep from generation to generation to remember how he had provided for them in the wilderness, even when they were all done with the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant that was there so that they would see, and they were every day seeing these reminders through the manna of God's provision. But again, the Passover had these reminders, not just visually, but even as they would taste bitter herbs, they were to be reminded, as they would taste that, oh, that's bitter, they were to be reminded of how bitter their slavery was that God had redeemed them from. They were to also taste and see that the Lord is good. And even in some of the other elements of the Passover, that was a part of it. God was engaging their senses. Even with these, these altars, and we read of an altar, but an altar was a place where animals would be slain. If you were the one slaying the animal, and this later became part of the priesthood, but you would see and you would feel the impact of killing an animal, killing a substitute, You would feel and you would hear and sense 
even the life coming out of this animal as you would lay your hand upon it. God is engaging their senses to, to show them how serious sin is, how we need a substitute. And of course, this all points us to our need for the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus. But the story of Exodus also shows us when we complain and blame others, we are forgetting God's sovereign goodness like Israel. Like when they're complaining for lack of water, they're forgetting that there had been a good God who had delivered them through water. Surely he could provide water if he did that with the Red Sea. Don't you think he can provide water for us? But they complain instead of looking to him, not trusting his sovereign power to deliver water. And then in chapter 13, right before this, they're hungry and they start blaming Moses like he's trying to kill them. And they're forgetting that he had just been used to save all their lives more than once. And so the Psalms tell us things like this. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, what? All of his benefits. We need to bless the Lord. We need to sing and and praise because we can forget his benefits. The fact that it tells us don't forget his benefits means we are prone to forget his benefits. And just focus on the one or two things that are not good and all, miss all of the benefits that he has done. And then it goes on to say in Psalm 103 there, he made way, known his way to Moses. How the Lord is merciful and compassionate. He revealed that to Moses. Don't forget those benefits as you read about Moses and what God did. Here's Psalm 105. Remember, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And then for the whole rest of the psalm, it's going through all the plagues on Egypt and how God's power and God's provision, every step of the way was there for them. You can read that in Psalm 105. It's all about applying what Israel went through in the wilderness to remember what God has done, remember his power, remember his miracles. Psalm 106, the next one. We have sinned even as our fathers did. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And they rebelled by the sea, by the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake to make known his mighty power. He redeemed them. The water covered their adversaries. And then Israel sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. That's Exodus 16 and 17. What we've seen, that's the story of Israel. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot. We can forget so easily soon, even as we go from here, forgetting the great works of God. What about when in intense grief, like Psalm 77, this is just part of it. Listen to the heart of this grieving one in Psalm 77. My soul refuses to be comforted. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. And here's how it it goes in his mind. Has God forgotten? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Then I said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your deeds of old, your wonders of old. And he goes through some of them in the Exodus. And then he says, what God is great like our God? Just like 
That's an echo of Jethro. You with your own hand redeemed your people. Your way was through the sea, yet your footprints were unseen. You led by the hand of Moses. He's talking about how he led the hand of Moses. It was through the sea. But he says this, your footprints were unseen. We couldn't see what you were doing. We didn't understand. We couldn't see your footprints like, like we sang last week. God plants his, his, his feet in the sea and he, he rides upon the storm, but we can't by our feeble sense make sense of these things. But we trust him. We remember what he has done. Psalm 78 says of Israel's fathers under Moses, they did not remember his power. Or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. The sea in the wilderness, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. That's the first part of chapter 17. Moses strikes the rock, water comes out, and it supplies all of them with water. It says, they remembered then that God was their rock. That's what they remembered from that. God was their rock. The most high God was their redeemer. He drove out nations before them. He put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. That's also happening in Exodus 17. And then Psalm 78. This is still Psalm 78. This is how it applies it. Tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, his wonders that he has done. He has commanded the fathers, to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And there's, there's children even in this room yet to be born here. We're to be telling them too that they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds. That's the, one of the applications for us as parents, as grandparents, but all of us, any opportunity you have to tell the next generation, the, the older and younger in the church, tell them these things the next generation, and the nations. And that takes us from man's memory to number two, God's mission. And the final application for us, and remember the mission statement of the book, chapter 9, verse 6, God is showing his power, and he's, to, he's aiming to make his name known to all of the earth. And we'll just begin to look at this chapter this week. It's power to conquer enemies, chapter 17. And it's also power to convert enemies. I love that. His power can conquer enemies. His power can convert his enemies. In chapter 18, God can justly destroy the Amalekites if he so chooses, and he can also mercifully deliver Arabs if he so chooses, as he does here, even a pagan priest by sovereign grace. I love this picture here. Chapter 18, verse 1, introduces Jethro as the priest of Midian. The priest, uh, maybe the highest religious leader of that Arabian religion. One writer says, he was such a prominent public leader among his own people that the story of his conversion would serve as both an encouragement to the Israelites and an example to them of the importance of allowing faith in the only true God to spread to others. And that's the, the mission, and he's going to even tell them in chapter 19 that this is what you're to be for the, for the nations. He's showing his saving power, remember his, the, the statement, to show his power, to make his name known. He's showing his saving power to a Gentile along the way, and he's making known his name Yahweh, his Hebrew name, the Lord. 
I want to read chapter 18 in the the Legacy Standard Bible that uses that Hebrew name Yahweh. Chapter 18, verse 1, Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh, that's his Hebrew covenant name, the Lord, had brought Israel out of Egypt. And then verse 8, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. He is the the first of a number of non-Jews who say by new faith, now I know. There's in 1 Kings 17, a Gentile widow outside Israel, and Sidon, and Elijah shows God's power in mighty ways to her. And this woman, this Gentile woman says, now I know this. You are a man of God, and the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. And then Elisha miraculously serves another Gentile, this Shunammite woman, who also says, now I know And then another trophy of of grace, I think even like Jethro, a a very prominent person who is a Syrian. The the Syrians were enemies of, of of Israel. And there's a commander of their army, this army that would want to wipe out Israel. One of their commanders has leprosy. And God shows his power to make his name known. He shows his power to heal him from leprosy when he will humbly respond to God's word and be washed in the the Jordan River. And here's what Naaman, this pagan general, says, also apparently converted. This is what he confesses. Now I know. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And he says, this is the, the, the general now, this commander, he refers to himself, to Elisha, as your servant. Your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. And then he, he, he begins to beg, in this matter may Yahweh pardon your servant. When I bow myself, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha replies to him, go in shalom, go in peace. And notice also here in verse 12, Jethro bows himself. He worships Yahweh alone with sacrifices. And it records how Moses and the elders and the people sacrifice together and they have a covenant meal together. But here's what Jesus comments on even some of those others in Luke 4. There were many widows, Jesus said, in Israel in the days of Elijah. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus brings up those events from the Old Testament. He's preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's talking about how God's plan had always been for those who would see themselves as the the poor, the the captives, the the desperately needing cleansing, if they would come to him and and see that he's the Messiah Isaiah spoke of, who is preaching deliverance to those who see they need deliverance desperately. 
And those Jews did not see their need in that synagogue. In fact, they wanted to throw him off a cliff at the end of that. They didn't like those stories of those Gentiles being brought into the family of faith. But in John 4, there's these Gentile Samaritans. After the woman at the well spoke with him and came back to them, this is what the Samaritans said. Even as the process, all the Jews were rejecting them. They say to her, now we believe Not because of just what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that this man is indeed the Savior of the world. Now we know. The Samaritans even had a form of the the Torah, and maybe had heard some of these other now I know statements, but they're saying now we know. We know this is the Savior of the world, this man. I need to ask you, do you now know Jesus, as your Savior, do you know him as your Lord? Is he greater than all others to you? If he's not, if you can't say he honestly is, you need to come to him like Naaman, humbly bowing, begging forgiveness as his servant, asking if the Lord would be merciful to you, the sinner, and to pardon you for your sin and commit to worship Nothing and no one else, but only him on his terms. Come to him. There's, a, there's an urgency. We've been reminded in, in recent events of the, the brevity of life and the urgency of life and, and how it's important for us today, today to make sure our lives are right with the Lord. We don't know if we will have tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, Scripture says, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart if you're here today. Maybe you've heard it many times, but you've never truly, humbly come to the Savior as your Lord. Come to him today. Don't put it off. Come to him. Jesus said in John 3, like Moses lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus would be lifted up for all to see. And in Exodus 17, Moses lifted up his name as, The Lord is my banner. Banner is what you lift up. Something you lift up on high for all to see. It's the same word Moses would later use of lifting up on a pole for all to look for healing. It was the word used for a military banner to call soldiers. It's the word for a a sail that that would fly on a ship to fly its colors to identify which navy this was a part of or a standard, or a signal on a hill to to rally the troops, or to announce victory. We think of even the the soldiers there at Iwo Jima pushing up our star-spangled banner in that famous scene there. But on the cross, Jesus Christ was lifted up for all to see, for healing, for help in battle as we look to him. He's also the one that if we're with him, we want to show our colors like him, show that we belong to him, that we're on his side. He's the one that we need to rally around. He's the one we need to look to for victory. Here's what Isaiah 11 prophesied of Jesus. There shall be a root of Jesse, that's a son of Jesse. This is who David was. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, a banner for the nations. So the son of David, not David himself, but a descendant of David, who would be a banner for the world, for the nations. Isaiah 49, the sovereign Lord says, quote, to the Gentiles, I will lift up my banner to the people. All mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer. People from every tribe and every tongue on this terrestrial ball are going to be able to say, now I know. 
And so we sing, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. He's with us in the battle. So stand up for Jesus, soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss from victory unto victory. His army he will lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. The Lord is my banner, Moses said. I hope we all can say the Lord Jesus is my banner. That we would lift him up, that we would look to him, that we would seek him, that we would speak to him of others like Moses did, that we would lift his banner highest. And and, and I love how Moses... Did you see how he went to his unsaved father-in-law and he showed affection to him? He showed love to him. He spoke the truth in love to him. He gave his testimony of how God had delivered him. And God used that to draw Jethro in by covenant grace to true worship and fellowship. And that's our mission too. What Moses did is our marching orders. That We need to share this far and wide. And, and this should encourage us with unsaved family, even with in-laws, as it talks about here. Show them care. Share with them. And let's be encouraged. If God could save a pagan Arab priest, he can save people you know. Let this encourage us to fight the good fight of faith as Christian soldiers and to raise up that flag I'll close with this. Philip Ryken says, Soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it also helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know the battle is not lost. We need a standard, something to look to for security and identity. What is the emblem of your hope? What do you look to for courage in times of difficulty and despair? May we all say with Moses, The Lord is my banner. When we're under attack, we can rally to him. From every nation, people will rally to him. And whenever we come under attack, let's remember the Lord and remember what he did in the past. Amen? Amen. Let's trust him and let's pray to him. Our great God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, for how you are at work in our lives. We pray that you would help us to remember rightly and to refuse to dwell wrongly on wrongs from the past. Lord, help us to look up to Christ as our banner for the nations. Amen.